God, we, we trust in you this morning. Our hope is in you. God, we know that, that there is no way to heaven but, th- but through you. And God, what an amazing, amazing gospel it is that you've given us. The story of you coming to earth and making a way for us to be with you. We love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You can find it starting on page 810 in the Bible underneath your seats. Matthew five thirty-eight. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. I'm the pastoral, I'm on now, uh, Mike Stanzik, I'm the pastoral resident here at Trinity Community Church, really happy to have you here this morning. Um, this is one of those passages that tests how uh, lion-hearted a, a preacher is. At, at the time that Jesus delivered these words, um, they would have been um, convicting, to say the least. For many of the listeners, it would have been scandalous. Um, I mean, radical words. And I, I think if if we encounter them today and, and we, we aren't convicted or scandalized or, or offended, um, it's either because we're, we're blind or stone-hearted or, or I have just simply failed to explain them. Um, these are, these are, this is an intense call to discipleship. And, um, so let's open in prayer and ask that the Lord would make us receptive. Lord Jesus, um, we know that... Uh, if there was anyone who did this, it is you. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make these words clear to us, um, that you would help me as I preach, um, that ultimately, Lord, you would, you would give us um, not only the courage to obey these things, um, but that we would come to love uh, the fact that you said them. Um, we love you, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
So I, I just started reading uh, a book called Just Mercy um, by, by Brian Stevenson. Um, so far, it's pretty good. It's a memoir of a defense attorney who's made much of his career defending um, death row inmates. Um, so right at the beginning of the, of the book, he opens by relaying the story of when he first met um, a death row inmate. He, he wasn't even out of law school yet. He was uh, interning at a, a nonprofit firm, and they asked him to go and tell this particular inmate um, that, that his execution has been put off indefinitely. It won't be in the next year. Um, so it's good news that he's bringing to this guy, but, but even so, he's nervous. He's operating with this certain idea of what a death row inmate is going to be like. Um, so the guard ushers Stevenson into this enclosed space where he can also be observed, and the inmate goes in with them, and they're told they have an hour to talk. Uh, so Stevenson uh, gives the news. The guy's relieved. And then he narrates this really extraordinary thing. They, they strike up a conversation. Um, they're, they're sharing music tastes. They're, uh, it turns out that they came from towns that were nearby one another, so they, this conversation goes on. It goes on for the full hour that they're given in the room, plus two more, um, to the point that the guard who's waiting outside uh, becomes really, really irate, comes in, um, takes the inmate and cuffs him again, um, but cuffs the, the handcuffs too tight to the point where the, the inmate actually is crying out in pain. Um, and, then, and then ushers the man out of the room. And obviously, St- Stevenson is narrating this um, to invoke um, the same sort of urgency and sympathy that he felt in that moment. Now, hear me on this. I'm not trying to endorse any particular view of the death penalty. Um, I, don't, I don't presently have a view on the death penalty to endorse. That's part of the reason why I picked up Just, Just Mercy. But something, I noticed something in myself while I was reading that, that part. And it was this... Uh, this thing in me that, so I'm reading about this, this inmate in pain and Stevenson's sympathy. And I'm just thinking, like, hey, man, whatever. Uh, if, if that dude didn't want to be hurt, then he shouldn't have hurt anybody. Um, you know, he shouldn't have done something wrong. In fact, he probably deserves worse. And then I thought of this passage. And I asked myself the question, who do I have permission to dehumanize? Like, like, this man had been tried and condemned as a murderer, yes, but does that give me the right to celebrate his humiliation? Does he cease to be human? Or am I even called to humanize and love and care for um, those who have, been, who, who have been found guilty of the most heinous crimes? Um, and, and Jesus gives a definitive yes Yes, I am called to love and humanize death row inmates. And so today, you know, we're, we're continuing in these six examples that Jesus is using to, to show how his disciples, they won't just follow the rules of the law, they will actually inhabit the virtues that the, the law is trying to, to bring out of people. And so Jesus is leading us beyond mere law-keeping and into the heart of the law, and the stakes are, are never higher than in this passage this morning. So first, what we're going to find out is that we are called to follow Jesus beyond retaliation and into peacemaking, or rather into compassion. So verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So um, just briefly, this is a phrase from the Old Testament. It comes up a few different times. Um, 
And it, it, in some ways, it, it functions as sort of a way to limit uh, justice. So, you know, someone breaks your tooth, you can't break two of his. Like, in some ways, it kind of functions that way, but really, it, it exists to make sure that justice happens. These, Jesus is quoting verses in the Old Testament that, that say that wrongs must be made right. That there should be something in the law to de-incentivize people from hurting others. That somebody shouldn't be able to hurt another person and then benefit off of that without some sort of a, a penalty. So here's the question we need to ask. Why in the world would Jesus appear to be correcting that law? That seems really, really good and really necessary, right? But again, we have to go back to what Jesus is doing for this entire section. He's showing us the law, and then he's showing us the virtue that would make that law unnecessary, that would make it obsolete. Justice laws, laws on justice, exist because peace doesn't. Laws on justice exist because peace doesn't. Jesus is saying that his disciples should be the sorts of people who make peace, who seek it ardently, even at the expense of their own rights. Verses 39 to uh, to, to 42. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and don't refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's hone in on a second on, on verse 39, on that phrase, do not resist the one who is evil. What does he mean by that? Because clearly, Jesus goes on to, to resist people, right? I mean, we're going to get to when he declares the woes against the Pharisees, it's going to get a little intense. Um, and then his disciples would, would go on to, to resist people, to, to speak out against the powers that be. Um, but there's, there's a major difference in the way that Jesus did it and the way that his disciples did it. I think this is well illustrated by like, how we usually make use of the phrase, turn the other cheek. So I'm indicting myself here as well, so don't think that I'm just making fun of other people. I've done this myself. But like, So let's say I'm telling a story, and my, my coworker, let's call him Dave, um, I'm telling a story, I'm saying, you know, the other day Dave walked by my cubicle, and he made a very snarky comment, which I will not repeat, um, I just felt like I needed to turn the other cheek, and so I turned to him and I said, Dave, I will pray for you. And I could tell he felt really bad. Like, as though the whole purpose of this passage is to, like, empower our workplace passive aggression. Like, it's, that's not what, it, what, it, what it's there for. But let's dig a little deeper. What, what is passive aggression? At the end of the day, it's, it's just aggression, right? Like, it's taking a moral high ground so that I can feel superior to the other person and make them feel like I'm superior. It's not trying to, to balance the scales. It's just trying to tip them in the other direction. Um, at the end of the day, it's retaliation. Instead, when Jesus later resists, when his disciples later resist, it is in a way that actually seeks the good of the enemies. They are actually seeking to balance the scales. They aren't just out to tip them in the other direction, to continue this power dynamic. Instead, the, the Son of Man comes to serve. 
So with that in mind, let's continue to, to see how Jesus illustrates this in the passage. He uses a few, um, a few different examples, and, and it's actually the last one that I think is the real, uh, the real doozy. Um, so the first one is a slap on the cheek. None of us like being slapped. Uh, it hurts a lot. But in, in this day and age, it would have been a major, major insult as well. Um, that in, in slapping somebody, you're, you're communicating you're small, you're insignificant, I'm better than you, all, all these things. And what's incredible about what Jesus says is that a disciple will not respond by like, you know, going back at the guy to try to slap him back. Instead, a disciple will turn the other cheek. In other words, communicating, I don't consider myself too good to be slapped. Go ahead. I'll absorb your anger. I don't think I'm too good for that. And then there's the next example where a disciple is being unjustly sued for their, their tunic or their shirt. And said so the disciple settles out of, co- uh, out of court, um, saying like, hey, man, you can take my shirt, you can take my cloak, the thing that keeps me warm on the cold nights. I don't, I don't need a judge to tell me to be generous to you. And then finally, um, this, this, this third one would have been very familiar to, to many of the Jews at the time. Um, this is called being portered. And it's when a Roman soldier would, would come to one of the citizens um, in the country they're occupying, uh, tell them to stand up and hand the citizen their equipment. And the citizen would have to go a mile with the, the Roman soldier carrying it. And Jesus is saying that his disciples will say, I would be happy to do that. But, but in fact, I want you to really get your rest in, man. I'll go a second mile with you. No problem. Jesus is actually calling his disciples to have compassion for even those <clears throat> who are infringing on their rights, who are infringing on their freedoms. Like, who tells people to do this, right? Right? Like, I don't hear rhetoric of this kind anywhere. So each of these cases, there's someone asserting themselves against a disciple unjustly in very dehumanizing ways. And Jesus actually tells his disciples that they are to choose in that moment um, to respond by by, uh, living creatively. That, That was Martin Luther King's phrase that they aren't just merely going to keep the law, they're going to improvise, right? They're going to live creatively through compassion. But here's the one that I think is the real kicker. It's the last phrase. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Why is Jesus bringing that up? So in this last command, Jesus flips the power dynamic. So it's no longer an oppressor coming and asserting themselves against the disciple. The disciple is the one who kind of like has all the cards and there's someone begging from them. And the disciple is to give. But why put that in this passage about peacemaking? I think it's because the only way that a disciple is going to find it in themselves to be compassionate to an oppressor is if they are a compassionate person if they actually live compassionately, constantly. 
And in living compassionately, what do you do? You, you hold all your comforts, all your rights, your freedoms, loosely. Not living your life to just maximize them as much as you can, but instead you see all of them as ultimately gift, and therefore just as easily given away as they were to be received. Jesus is calling us beyond mere law-keeping into compassion, and that is terrifying. Why is it terrifying? And do, you, do you feel that as well? The, this sense of, if I give myself away like this, I'll be lost. I'll lose myself. I, I won't be free anymore. I'll be enslaved to everybody around me. And again, I'd remind you, Clearly, Jesus resisted oppressive forces, but at the same time, let's get to the root of what we're really afraid of here, man. I think at the end of the day, we're really scared of the deathbed test. We're scared of coming to the end of our lives and and realizing that that we no longer have the option of changing our circumstances. Um, And so all we can do is reflect back and we have to measure, was my life worth it. At the end of the day, how do we measure that? Did I achieve as much as I wanted to? Did I marry the person I wanted to? Did I do the things I wanted to? Did I experience the things that I wanted to? Did I exercise my freedom to the nth degree? Or did something block me in the end? And now I'm sitting here dissatisfied with the life that that I've had. I think we're all in our heart of hearts, terrified of that moment. And so whenever somebody seems to to assert themselves at us in a way that would limit our full enjoyment of life, um, we're repulsed. As though, at the end of the day, if if our life isn't worth someone's envy, then it isn't worth my contentment. We spend so much time thinking about how to protect and maximize our freedoms that we, we, we rarely stop to think about what it is we want to do with them. So uh, my wife, Ashley, she says that you can tell what I've been reading by my sermon illustrations. I guess that's true because I'm going to uh, use David Foster Wallace again. Um, I quoted him last week. He's just, he's fascinating. He really is fascinating. So again, this dude was not a believer, but he, he was highly shaped by the words of Christ. Um, and, and he, he's also a very good writer, so he puts things really nicely. So this was a commencement speech that he delivered to Kenyon College in 2005. So it's a liberal arts school. He entitled the speech, This is Water. Um, and in it, he, he at one point, I mean, again, this is, this is a dude that was agnostic, maybe, probably an atheist. Um, at one point, he, he says, at the end of the day, um, there's no such thing as an atheist. Every one of you, your default setting is to worship something. And your default setting is to worship something in yourself. So if, it, if it's beauty that you want, you'll spend all your days feeling ugly. If you worship your intelligence, you'll spend all your days feeling dumb. Power, you'll feel weak. So he says, at the end of the day, these, what we really see as freedoms, um, enslave us. And that what we really need is, is a truer sort of freedom. Uh, if you could go to the second page of the quote, that'd be great. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm skipping ahead of about one sentence in there. But So he, he then comes to recommend what he thinks is, is the truer, greater freedom. There are all different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care, care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Great writer, right? You can turn a phrase. Isn't that true? That sometimes the very freedoms that we enjoy and that are truly good things, if they're elevated too highly, enslave us. It's a good thing that we have comfort and, and enjoyment in our country and, and that, that isn't actively being oppressed. But it shouldn't define us. It shouldn't be the end-all, be-all of our lives. Instead, we are called to a life of open-handed, open-hearted compassion. And it's in that sort of life of compassion that we will make peace. We will be hard to offend. We won't see our, ourselves too highly. We'll be hard to insult. And we'll be generous to both the poor and the oppressor. It's hard to find anyone who, who has articulated this more meaningfully in the last century than, than Martin Luther King Jr. Um, it, it was these two passages, this, this passage this morning... Um, that informed his entire philosophy of nonviolence. King believed that oppression could be opposed biblically because Jesus did it, so did his disciples, but that it's not just about the ends, right? It's about the means. It's about the way you seek peace. The means we use, he said, must be as pure as the ends we seek. In other words, if, if what you truly want is for there to be an end of this retaliatory power dynamic, you can't do it by hurting someone, by just elevating your own power, elevating your own rights. You have to do it by love. In this case, the old adage is untrue. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. Of course, this this brings us to, to the moment in the passage when things get unimaginable. The second part. We are to follow Jesus beyond enmity and into boundless love. Verses 43 to 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So uh, Jesus is quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. Um, it's interesting, the, the passage doesn't say hate your enemy. It says love your neighbor. Um, but, but here's a, a little window into, into how um, many of the scribes and Pharisees were interpreting the scriptures at this time. What they would do is they would read that passage and see it as 
marking these very bold-lined boundaries around who it is I'm supposed to love. So in saying love your neighbor, by implication, it's saying, therefore, don't love your enemy, right? So they saw the passages existing to to put these, you know, very specific sort of uh, measuring lines around who it is that we love when the the point of the passage is that you should love. And and so they they went about with with these hyper-rigid interpretations. Um, This person is in, this person is out. And conveniently, uh, because it's my neighbor I'm called to love, all the people who are in are people who like me and affirm me and make me comfortable, uh, and I don't take any issue with the way that they live. And as a result, the, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't go out of their way to, to befriend the tax collectors and prostitutes because they disapproved of much of their lives. In fact, as far as the tax collectors, um, the, there's a real sense in which they were enemies. They were actively um, betraying their own people, uh, extorting funds from their own people, in addition to passing along uh, funds to the occupying powers. So um, the Pharisees definitely didn't feel any obligation to love those folk. And Jesus is pointing out that this interpretation is ridiculous. The point of the law isn't that we should love our neighbor and therefore hate our enemy. The point is that we should be people whose lives are marked by love. It's one of the most radical, unimaginable commands ever spoken by a religious leader, ever. Jesus is saying that there is no population no individual that isn't entitled to our love. If I'm going about drawing boundaries around who I should and shouldn't love, then I've lost it. I, you know, when it comes to our love, everyone is in, and that includes all the people who have drawn boundaries that exclude us. I, and just think about how this turned out in the, in the life of Christ. He, he didn't approve of what the tax collectors and the prostitutes we're doing? Absolutely not. He, he made that clear. But he also didn't just sit comfortably with his in-group and talk about all the ways in which the tax collectors and prostitutes were ruining society, right? Instead, he went out to dinner with them. He loved them. He, for all intents and purposes, it seemed like he had a genuine curiosity about them as people and enjoyed their company to the extent that the scribes and Pharisees uh, were able to make the mistake that he approved of their lifestyle. Does that look like us? Um, so, I'm really into film. Um, Federico Fellini, his, his first film was called La Strada, or, or The Street. Um, and it, it follows this um, young, kind of naive uh, woman named Gelsomina who um, goes to join the circus uh, because her, her mother and her sisters are living in poverty, so she's going to start forwarding them the money that she makes on the road. And once at the circus, she meets the strong man, um, Zampano. Um, and, and quickly you realize that Gelsomina is, the, is really the only person who, who has committed herself to Zampano in friendship. And then from, from then on, much of the movie is really a study of Zampano's character. Um, that to the soles of his feet, he is a brutal man. Um, like, you know, working through the metaphor, too, of, of like he literally makes his living breaking things. Um, so, so Fellini gives us this study of an enemy, of a man who has made himself the enemy of everybody around him. And so as, as the, 
the movie progresses, it culminates in this moment where um, Zampano is in an argument with somebody, flies off the handle, and accidentally kills him. Um, and, and as a result, loses Gelsomina as a friend. Um, and we're, we're given this final scene uh, where it's Zampano on a beach, and the actor is just one of those like stupidly talented actors where he can... It's almost like he can communicate words to you, even though he's not saying any words. Um, and so you, you see this Zampano on the beach and the slow realization that he has alienated himself from everybody in his life, including the one person that had truly loved him. And he just dissolves into to desperate tears. And then the credits roll. Like, that's how the movie ends, is just this, like, desolate dude on a beach sobbing to himself. And... Um, and yet, uh, it achieves this unbelievable thing where you finish this movie and you fully believe that Zampano is responsible for what he got. Like, this is just. He has received justice. But Fellini gets you to this place where you actually, you're able to hold that in balance with this feeling of, but I would give him grace. I want to seek his good. I don't want him to have to suffer the consequences of being a brutal man. And that Jesus is actually calling his disciples to have Fellini's eyes for everyone in the world. I would give you grace. God has given you grace. I would seek your good. To recognize that those who do us wrong are loved in the eyes of God. To love them and pray for, like to literally plead with God that they would not suffer the consequences of their evil. I I think we have to be hard on ourselves with this one. Like, maybe it's a person in your life. I think more likely it's a political group. Whether you're liberal or conservative. How often do you, you know, resort to name-calling in order to dehumanize another group of people? And I do this myself. I'm, I'm just as much at fault for this. But how often do I, do I speak in such a way that, that takes a group of actual human beings and instead morphs them into a group that I can then say, the world would be better without them? Instead, Jesus is, like, if I truly think they're wrong, I should calculate that really carefully, but, like, if I truly think that they're wrong, then my response shouldn't be, you know, refuse, garbage. My response should be to actually pray. Like, it, it struck me that I think that there have been people in my life, or even populations, I mean, like, just, I don't even know them as individuals, that if they were to come to me face-to-face, and, and literally say, I was wrong, can we reconcile? There would be this real part of myself that would want to say no. That instead, deep down, what I want is their humiliation and pain and failure. I don't actually want peace. I don't actually want love. When we love our enemies, even before they're willing to consider it, we are actually blazing a trail toward reconciliation. Again, like, I'm going to quote Martin Luther King a ton because he's awesome on this. Um, the, the next quote is from him. This is taken out of one of the essays that are collected in, uh, in Strength to Love, which was a group of sermons in the final um, essay that he sort of reworked to, to more fit an essay style. But 
He says, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. We never get rid of an enemy by meeting hate with hate. We get rid of an enemy by getting rid of enmity. By its very nature, hate destroys and tears down. By its very nature, love creates and builds up. Love transforms with redemptive power. Who do we have permission to dehumanize? No one. No one. Verses 45 to the end. If I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So that, that, that quote is, is another Old Testament phrase. Um, the, you must be holy as your heavenly Father is, is holy. You will be holy for I am holy. And the sense there um, is more like set apart. That by, by virtue of the way you live, you will be different as God is different from our, our warped and beautiful world under sin. And that more than any of these other examples that Jesus gives, it is this one that will set apart his church. If we are living our lives just to maximize our enjoyment, if we too are, are just giving into the angry rhetoric that gets tossed around, not just between white supremacists and Antifa, but just between normal, everyday people talking about the people they don't like. If we can't transcend that, we are just blending in. We are just blending in. But if we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, Could you bring up the picture? So I just want to take a moment and have you, have you take a look at this picture. Some of you know what this is from. Just take a moment to, to look at the faces of the people. Like this guy over here is laughing about something and holding his girlfriend's hand. This dude's pointing at something. This is, a very, this is the bottom half. I'm not going to show the whole thing. This is the bottom half of a very famous photo of the lynching of Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith. Above their heads are two, they're probably in their 20s, um, bodies of, of black men. They're just riddled with bullet holes. It is gruesome. When I first saw this photo, all I could feel for a moment was... Anger. Because there doesn't seem to be even a shred of recognition in the faces of this crowd that something mind-bogglingly horrible has just happened and has happened at their hands. I mean, you don't get a sense that they ever questioned whether they had the right 
to hang somebody without a trial. And if I could speak to them, I would say that your humanity is no different than the humanity of those two black men swinging above you. You have the same humanity. And then as soon as I thought that, I, was, I felt a kind of horror. And it wasn't a horror that replaced the anger, but it definitely changed it. Because it made me realize that in order to achieve this level of indifference, so this took place in Marion, Indiana in 1930, um, in order to achieve that level of indifference, the culture in Marion had to be like pervasively, pervasively racist to the point where, where I would truly be convinced that I, I could hang a man that, with as little moral uh, indecision as I, that I would you know, apply to slaughtering a pig or something. You know? that the, the culture had to be so formative that you can actually be this indifferent. And then I realized that, that there's no, nothing about me that makes my humanity different than that crowd's humanity, that I too could have been fooled. I could have been lynching Thomas and Abram. And what we find in the scriptures is that, that we too have been enemies. We too have been enemies of God. Every one of us has participated in bringing evil into God's good world. And that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He turned the other cheek to be slapped. He underwent an unjust trial. He was forced, portered, to carry his cross the miles to Golgotha. And gave himself to his enemies in an act of unprecedented, world-changing, world-saving love. Philippians says that, that Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Meaning that in that moment, he, he didn't demand his rights. I'm the son of God. But he, made, he took on the form of a servant and gave himself over to violence. He laid down his rights and his freedoms to give us ours, to give us the kingdom. And it is only by his act of grace that we can truly say that we have anything of lasting worth. See, my, my prayer is that none of us would have enemies like, like that mob. And most of us never will. Most of us never will. But even for the lesser enemies... My prayer is that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and remember that anyone who would keep his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. In the grace of Christ, we are never truly defeated, never truly robbed, never truly without hope. And my prayer is that if those moments come, as they will in some small form or another, that we would be set apart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, for your goodness to us. And we thank you for your mercy, Lord, that, that it isn't by obeying you that we come into the kingdom. It is by your grace that we come. 
And now as an additional act of grace, you are teaching us your ways. And I pray that you'd help us to live them. Even though we might enjoy our rights and our comforts and our freedoms, that we wouldn't be defined by them. But for the sake of love, be willing to give them up, that we would seek the good of our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. In your name, amen.